The war in Afghanistan is now over. Joe Biden has decided to pull out all troops. Afghanistan has fallen to the Taliban. And so now we have to ask ourselves, what was the war for? In order to understand what actually happened in Afghanistan and whether defeat was inevitable, we have to look at the history of Afghanistan. So today we're going to go through the entire history of U.S.-Afghanistan relations, and we're going to trace exactly where this war went right and where it went wrong. Let's begin in the 1950s. Relations between the U.S. and Afghanistan actually date back to then. That's when the Eisenhower administration was seeking to bolster ties with the newly formed Afghan government in order to prevent them from becoming a Soviet satellite state. This was the middle of the Cold War. So in 1959, for example, President Eisenhower actually flew to Afghanistan. He led a motorcade to Kabul, meeting with the king and the prime minister. Between the 50s and 1979, the United States granted about $500 million in loans, grants, and commodities, a bunch of NGOs, non-governmental organizations, were working in Afghanistan to try to help the economy over there. Afghanistan's government remained officially neutral during the Cold War, accepting aid from both sides. In 1973, General Mohammad Daoud Khan, formerly the prime minister of Afghanistan, overthrew the king, whose name was Mohammad Zahir Shah. He replaced the regime with the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. Okay, again, this government remained somewhere in between with regard to the communist USSR and the United States. Then, in 1978, Khan was killed in a communist coup and was replaced by members of the Communist Party. The new regime said it wasn't officially in league with the Soviet Union, but it pretty much was. They started cementing ties with the USSR. They infamously replaced the country's black, red, and green Islamic flag with a knockoff of the Soviet Union's flag. That coup resulted in a move toward more political repression combined with a communistic land reform program. And then in February 1979, the American ambassador to Afghanistan, a man named Adolf Dubbs, was kidnapped under mysterious circumstances, murdered by his kidnappers. The United States responded by withdrawing all support from the Afghan government. So now the Afghan government is basically a proxy for the USSR. Meanwhile, chaos is breaking out in the new Afghan government as Noor Mohammad Taraki, one of the founding members of the Afghan Communist Party and the new prime minister, is murdered by supporters of another communist leader named Hafizullah Amin. The Soviet Union invaded in order to bolster the deputy prime minister, a guy named Babrak Karmal. The new regime resulted in the rise of the famous Mujahideen. This is 1980. By 1982, thanks to the war, some 2.8 million Afghans had fled to Pakistan, another 1.5 million to Iran. The Western powers began funding the Afghan Mujahideen in order to stymie the Soviets. The Mujahideen, at this time, it's a blanket name for a wide variety of disorganized groups. So it wasn't like a giant coordinated fighting force. It ranged from rural fighters, domestically driven, who wanted the overthrow of the communist regime, to people who wanted the imposition of a total Islamic state, the sort of predecessors to the Taliban. In 1989, the U.S., Pakistan, Afghanistan, and the Soviet Union signed a peace agreement guaranteeing Afghan independence and the removal of all Soviet troops. In 1992, the Mujahideen overthrew the Soviet puppet government that had been left in place and formed an Islamic state with a guy named Burhanuddin Rabbani as president. Now, by this point, Afghanistan had been in a state of war for at least a decade and a half. Kabul was awash in bloodshed, tribal warfare, and this leads to the rise of the Taliban. So in 1994, Mullah Omar, who is a religious leader and now a military leader, creates the Taliban. It's an Islamic radical group consolidating under the banner of Sharia law. Their big promise is that they were going to end the conflict. They would end the civil war. The Taliban quickly gained power. They won Kandahar, and in 1996, they seized Kabul and with it, control of the country. The new Taliban government is only recognized by three countries on planet Earth, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Pakistan. They all were allies of the new Taliban regime. Meanwhile, the Taliban offered peripatetic terrorist Osama bin Laden a place to stay. Bin Laden had originally fought with the Mujahideen in the 1980s under the banner of a group he called Al-Qaeda. 
Bin Laden had returned to Saudi Arabia after the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan. He'd been welcomed as sort of a hero. In 1994, he was expelled because he kept backing terror attacks on American targets. He had then taken refuge in Sudan. He was expelled from Sudan in 1996. In 1996, the Taliban take him back into Afghanistan. And upon his return to Afghanistan, bin Laden releases a fatwa declaring jihad against the United States. And then, of course, launches a series of increasingly spectacular terrorist attacks on American targets. In 1998, bin Laden orders the bombing of the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, killing 224 people. In 2000, bin Laden orders the bombing of the USS Cole, killing 17 Americans. And then, of course, September 11th. In the aftermath of September 11th, the United States called on the Taliban to turn bin Laden over. The Taliban refused, saying that only Allah could provide for the overthrow of their regime. Instead, the United States did. On October 7th, 2001, the United States and UK began Operation Enduring Freedom, a bombing campaign against the Taliban. Within two months, by December 17th, 2001, the Taliban had been driven from power completely. Osama bin Laden, for his part, had escaped across the border to Pakistan. In December, the United Nations set up a conference to decide on the future government of Afghanistan. That agreement led to the installation of a man named Hamid Karzai as the interim administration head. He would later be confirmed to head the transitional government in June of 2002. Just a couple months before that, in April, President George W. Bush announced a new Marshall Plan for Afghanistan. Congress appropriated $38 billion in humanitarian aid and reconstruction assistance to Afghanistan. From not only intelligence, but from the history of military conflict in Afghanistan. It's been one of initial success, followed by long years of floundering and ultimate failure. We're not going to repeat that mistake. In November 2002, in a concession to the international nature of the effort in Afghanistan, the U.S. created a civil affairs framework to work with the United Nations and non-governmental organizations. The reconstruction effort would chiefly be led by quote-unquote provincial reconstruction teams, a disorganized and discombobulated series of groups seeking security and development across the country. In May 2003, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld declared an end to major combat in Afghanistan. That announcement came at the same time as George W. Bush's declaration that the fighting in Iraq had been ended and the infamous Mission Accomplished banner flew aboard an aircraft carrier. At this point, there were only 8,000 American troops in Afghanistan. The mission was said to have shifted to, quote-unquote, stability, stabilization, reconstruction, and activities. In August 2003, NATO took control of the international security forces in Afghanistan. The so-called ISAF forces would eventually number 65,000 troops from 42 countries. In January 2004, a group of Afghan delegates announced the formation of an Afghan constitution. In October of 2004, Karzai was elected president in the first democratic election in Afghanistan's history. In May 2005, Karzai and Bush announced an agreement as strategic partners in which the U.S. would be given access to Afghan military facilities to fight terrorism, which, of course, was the entire goal of the war, and the United States would continue to provide aid and assistance to Afghan security forces. In September, there was another election held for the Council of the People, Council of Elders, and local councils, and more than 6 million Afghans turned out to vote. By July 2006, however, the successes in Afghanistan were starting to fade. Suicide attacks rocketed from 27 in 2005 to 139 in 2006. The central government appeared unable in many cases to provide basic services in the countryside. The small footprint of the international forces allowed the resurgence of the insurgency. By November, the West was beginning to lose its will for war as well. At a NATO summit, Secretary General Jop de Hoopschefer announced that NATO would seek to turn over security to the Afghan National Army by 2008. In 2007, Defense Secretary Robert Gates ripped our NATO allies, saying, quote, At this time, many allies are unwilling to share the risks, commit the resources, and follow through on collective commitments to this mission and to each other. As a result, we risk allowing what has been achieved in Afghanistan to slip away. 
Upon taking office in February 2009, Barack Obama announced that Afghanistan was the good war, and he also announced a semi-surge, 17,000 more troops to Afghanistan to join the 37,000 troops already in Afghanistan as of January. Defense Secretary Robert Gates said the American mission in Afghanistan had been too broad and said the goal instead should merely have been to prevent terrorism rather than nation build. In March, Obama announced the United States would increase aid to Pakistan and send 4,000 troops to Afghanistan to train the Afghan army and police force. NATO signed on to that limited mission in May. In July 2009, the United States launched a major offensive in Helmand province, always the most troublesome province in Afghanistan, to bolster support for the local police and restore government services. By August, U.S. forces in the country numbered between 60,000 and 68,000. In November 2009, the Afghan election came under serious criticism for corruption. Karzai won another term, but barely. In fact, he tried to stop a runoff election. He was forced to conduct one by international pressure, but his opponent had pulled out of the runoff, leading to serious allegations of corruption and election fixing. In December 2009, Obama announced another surge, committing another 30,000 troops to the fight. At the same time, he announced for the first time the United States would start withdrawing troops. July 2011 would mark the beginning of the U.S. pullout. Of course, simultaneously putting in troops and announcing that you're going to start withdrawing troops in a final pullout is likely to lead to an increase in violence. That's precisely what happened. In November 2010, NATO countries signed an agreement to hand over full responsibility for Afghan security to Afghan forces by the end of 2014. On May 1st, 2011, Osama bin Laden was killed. This allowed the West to declare some semblance of victory in Afghanistan. Obama began talking simultaneously about withdrawing nearly the entire surge force. Similarly, Obama announced the U.S. was holding preliminary peace talks with the Taliban itself. During the same period, Obama announced his plan to withdraw all combat troops by 2014 in line with NATO. Not surprisingly, the Taliban responded with aggression. In March 2012, the Taliban pulled out of the talks completely. At about the same time, U.S. Defense Secretary Leon Panetta announced the U.S. would seek to conclude combat missions by as early as mid-2013 and shift instead to security assistance. In June 2013, Afghan forces were granted control over national security. That same day, resumption of talks between the U.S. and Taliban were announced, undercutting the Afghan government. In May 2014, Obama announced most U.S. forces would be withdrawn from Afghanistan by the end of 2016. By the end of 2014, less than 10,000 American troops would be in Afghanistan. The map shows the story. As the United States began to withdraw, the Taliban began to strengthen. By 2017, Afghanistan had become a relatively stable stalemate. U.S. troop levels had stabilized at or around 10,000 in Afghanistan since the mission shift in 2014. The government was controlling approximately 60% of districts in the country. From time to time, troop numbers would fluctuate in response to emergencies. In 2017, for example, the U.S. delegated Marines to Helmand province in a support role to prevent its complete collapse. That same year, President Trump announced that while he would love to pull out of Afghanistan, the situation on the ground would have to dictate whether that would be an available option. In January 2018, the Taliban launched a series of terrorist attacks in Kabul itself, killing 115 people. And by 2019, the Trump administration opened negotiations with the Taliban. The deal would presumably have the United States withdrawing troops in exchange for the Taliban pledging to prevent terrorist groups from using the country as a base. In September, however, Trump broke off the peace talks. The following February, the U.S. and Taliban signed a deal along the lines proposed by the Trump administration, but the Taliban continued to pursue terror attacks on Afghan forces, sensing a breach between the U.S. government and the Afghan government. The U.S. continued to pull out troops. In November 2020, after the election, U.S. Defense Secretary Christopher Miller announced plans to bring American troop numbers down to just 2,500. Then, on April 14th, President Biden announced the U.S. would withdraw all forces by September 11th, 2021. The speed with which the Afghan forces collapsed was frightening, but it was a direct response to the withdrawal of all close air support and civilian contractor support by the Biden administration. The Afghan military had been built to work with the U.S. military. They required the support 
of close air support from the U.S. military, and they required American civilian contractors to service the Afghan Air Force. All of that was withdrawn by Biden. In July, Biden infamously said Afghanistan would not look like Saigon and that the Taliban had no capabilities akin to the Viet Cong. It is not at all comfortable. By August 15th, the Taliban had taken over Kabul. Let's talk for a second about where things were before Biden decided to do what Biden eventually did, namely hand over the entire country to the Taliban. Here is a chart of American troop levels in Afghanistan. As you can see, the chart shows that at the 2014 mark, the troop levels in Afghanistan dropped dramatically, all the way down to 10,000 troops, 12,000 troops, and then finally 2,500 troops. Bottom line is this. There was a stalemate in Afghanistan. That stalemate had been held by a minimum number of American troops with a very minimum number of American deaths. By the end of the war, there had been not one American combat casualty since February of 2020. The notion that this was either an endless war or that the Taliban were about to overrun the country unless the United States pulled out is unsupportable by the fact. The entire intelligence community was warning Biden that the likely outcome of this withdrawal was the Taliban taking back the country. The only question was how fast that would happen. Biden decided we had to withdraw forthwith for no apparent reason. He was simply committed to the path of withdrawal. It didn't matter that 10 to 15,000 Americans might get stuck in Afghanistan and that we would have to bribe the Taliban to get them out. It didn't matter that maybe 100,000 Afghan allies and their families would get stuck in Afghanistan and probably will end up stuck there, murdered by the Taliban. Joe Biden wanted things his way. He got them his way. And according to Joe Biden, he's made zero mistakes. But you don't think this could have been handled? This actually could have been handled better in any way? No mistakes? No, I, I, I don't think it could have been handled in a way that there, we, we're going to go back in hindsight and look. But the idea that somehow there's a way to have gotten out without chaos ensuing, I don't know how that happens. The initial war in Afghanistan was not a mistake. The Taliban was the group that had harbored al-Qaeda, refused to turn over Osama bin Laden in the aftermath of September 11th. There were many mistakes made along the progression of the Afghan war's path, but the original war itself was launched with wide bipartisan support for a very good reason, to stop al-Qaeda and destroy them. It is worthwhile to note for all of those who believe that the United States must remove itself from endless wars, that the history of the United States and foreign military occupations is a history whereby corrupt military dictatorships often become our chief allies in democracy. South Korea, only exists because the United States remained in South Korea to this day with tens of thousands of troops. South Korea held its first election in the 1980s. The Korean War ended in 1953. The same thing is true of Taiwan. The United States essentially removed all support from Shanghai Shek in China as of 1947-1948. The United States continued support to Taiwan despite it being a rather corrupt military dictatorship up till the 1980s means that today Taiwan is a democracy. Very often the United States has an interest in long-term occupations. But when it comes to Afghanistan, we weren't even talking about keeping tens of thousands of troops to pacify the countryside. We were talking about keeping a skeletal force there to simply maintain bases against terrorism. Now those bases are gone. Pakistan has decided to remove all American footprint from its country as well. We have no capacity to police the countryside of the Taliban, which will now become a safe haven for terrorism once again. And our geopolitical enemies are looking with greedy eyes at all of our allies around the globe. China is celebrating the United States' withdrawal from Afghanistan and the subsequent collapse of the Afghan military, as well as the humanitarian crisis likely to follow. They're looking at Taiwan and saying, why shouldn't we do the same thing the Taliban did, except do it with regard to Taiwan? Russia has to be looking with envious eyes at Latvia and Estonia. 
Iran has already decided to up its terror game. Terrorists all over the world are looking at the United States and seeing a paper tiger in the same way that Osama bin Laden once saw a paper tiger in the aftermath of the Clinton administration's decision not to do anything about the bombings of the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. Foreign policy has consequences. The story of Afghanistan is not the story of inevitable defeat. The story of Afghanistan is a story of cowardice by the Biden administration, and it's a story of a disaster that did not have to happen. So let's get back to the original question. Was the war in Afghanistan a complete failure? The answer is no. The war in Afghanistan was not a complete failure. It was not an inevitable defeat for the United States. The goal of the war was to prevent terrorism from arising from Afghan soil. The United States military did an admirable job of that for 20 years. And then the political leadership, as they so often do, decided to surrender. This is not on our soldiers. Our soldiers are heroes. The people who gave their lives in defense of American freedom did so for good cause. Our Afghan allies did so for a good cause. The cowardice is the cowardice of our political and military leadership alone. It is not the failure of our American soldiers, all of whom continue to perform heroically. It is just another lesson in the long history of pusillanimous American leadership. For 20 years after 9-11, the American military prevented Afghanistan from becoming a terror hotbed. Now the political leadership class has decided to surrender Afghanistan back to the hell it was in before we ever arrived. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. <laughs> 